You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. Don't turn off your iPhone. This is actually the Advisory Opinions Podcast with David French sitting in in the prime host chair for Sarah Isger, who is gone. She is hanging out with judges right now. Might even be walking the Gettysburg battlefield uh, with judges. So she's going to come back and have some uh, some great stories, maybe some audio. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but in the meantime, I have retaken the helm of the Advisory Opinions podcast, and we have a repeat guest, my friend, commissioner of the Boston Baseball League, the greatest fantasy baseball league in the known universe, the one that I belong to. And also, um, what's your title, current title right now. I, I said you were the emperor of a, uh, that you ran an empire of criminal defense lawyers in the state of Kentucky, but that's not your, your title. That's not the official title. Uh, the official title is, uh, I'm the public advocate for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So I run our public defender system. So I just realized I didn't say your name, Damon Preston, commissioner, Boston baseball league, public advocate, state of Kentucky. Also, Notable for purposes of this podcast, a former public defender in New York City. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about um, this really terrible killing in New York. This is the killing of Jordan Neely. So this is in May on May 1, uh, a man named Daniel Penny Marine choked Jordan Neely to death on a New York City subway train. Um, that's what we know, uh, and it has absolutely torn the city apart. Um, the fury uh, on the side of those who say that what happened to Jordan Neely was unconscionable uh, has led to protests, shutdowns of the sub, some dangerous protests, including people jumping on the tracks to stop, stop subway trains. Then others are absolutely in the camp that say that um, – Daniel Penny, the person who choked Jordan Neely, was completely in the right. Folks have even called him a hero. Um, so what we're going to do in, in this podcast is we're going to try to just very systematically break down the law here. This is a legal podcast. We're not going to talk about the political cultural ramifications of that much, except in how they play on sort of the law and the legal considerations. But this case is really, really interesting because... Uh, this is a situation where it seems pretty darn clear that Mr. Penny did not intend to kill Jordan Neely. He did intend to intervene physically, obviously, because he did. He inter intended to intervene physically, did not intend to kill, but he did, in fact, um, kill Jordan Neely. And we're going to talk about the circumstances under which you can intervene in defense of others. Um, certainly in defense of self, what are the legal standards where you can intervene? What ha under what, what kind of level of force can you use when you intervene? And what happens if the level of force that you use has consequences that you don't intend? So we're going to walk through all of this. And um, let's just start uh, with some general overall background, get into the specific facts. We'll talk about the law and then we'll put the law with the facts, very ABC, very uh, organized, hopefully. Um, but we'll just start with um, what we know. And, and I'll give you a brief overview of what we know, which is actually not as much as you might think. <laughs> so, because there is a video of the choking itself, but well, here's what we know, and and then I'll I'll go to Damon sort to to sort of see what stands out in 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 Damon's mind. So what we know is there have been a number, and I think this is important. There have been a number of recent violent encounters on the subway, including murders on the subway. Um, where the how dangerous the subway is right now 
uh, relative historically, I, I, I'm not sure, but it is absolutely the case. There have been a number of dangerous, violent encounters, including murders, including what seem to be random murders on the subway. So there is a heightened sense of alarm and concern that people have on the subway. Then here comes Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely, who had some, I'm not going to say notoriety because that sounds negative, but some small degree of subway fame in years past because he was a Michael Jackson impersonator. He was somebody who danced on subway cars, entertaining people, but then had gone into a mental health spiral. Apparently his mother had been killed. Uh, He went into a mental health spiral. He walks onto a subway, uh, on a subway train uh, last Monday, and he starts getting very aggressive. Um, He talks about being hungry. He talks about that he doesn't, um, he he doesn't care if he dies. Uh, It's creating a scene. People close to him start to move away. He took off his jacket. He threw it on the ground. And here's, Here's the quote that's circulating. I'm tired already. I don't care if I go to jail and get locked up. I'm ready to die. Now, here's where things get kind of hazy. It's not clear if Mr. Neely or Mr. Penny had an exchange. Um, There's not video of the initial grabbing of Neely, but there is a thump. Then a video starts rolling. Both men are on the floor and... Penny, the Marine, has Neely in a chokehold. If you've ever seen this hold before, if you watch any kind of MMA fighting, if you've seen sort of combatives training in the military or participated in combatives training in the military, it's like a classic chokehold slash submission hold. Um, It's the kind of thing where you, in MMA parlance, you might see someone try to tap out before they pass out or uh, a kind of hold that you have seen people do where people seem to sort of slowly pass out. Well, uh, Mr. Neely doesn't just pass out. He's in the chokehold and he dies. Uh, and here we are. So the police question Mr. Penny, release him. Now, apparently a grand jury is going to take up the the case. We don't have any charges as of the time that we're recording this podcast. But those are the general facts. And so, Damon, what are your thoughts? You know, what, what were your thoughts A, as you saw this in, uh, event unfold and as you began to dive into the facts? What, what, what were your thoughts on the sort of the, the what happened of all of this? My initial thought was that this is just it's clearly a very difficult legal case. And we'll get into why it's difficult legally. But it's also just legal. It's difficult for me you know, morally or, or to put yourself in the position of the people on that subway train. Uh, since this happened, we've learned more about Mr. Neely's background and a little more about Mr. Penny's background. But none of that was known to the people on the subway car at the time. All they see, maybe they had seen this uh, Mr. Penny or Mr. Neely uh, in his Michael Jackson act in the past. But whether they knew that was him or not, even if it, whether they did or not, they didn't know why is this man screaming? What are the limits of his outrage here? Is is he just verbal or is the verbal going to turn into uh, more threatening, aggressive, and perhaps assaultive behavior uh, or uh, even more violent uh, than that, like other cases that you talked about? So that's the first thing that jumped out on me is just how difficult this would be in the moment to figure out how do we respond to this? And that's as we get into the law, that's that's what's difficult because you don't want the law to be in a situation where there's no good answer. And here there's it's this is just really difficult. And and I, I did live in New York for a period of time uh, in the 90s and I, you did as well. And uh, it's not it was not uncommon at the time to uh, be sitting on the subway, reading a book or just trying to get to your job or wherever you were going. And for someone to start acting really strangely on on the car, and it's always a little off-putting and off, uh, kind of upsetting. Like yeah. I don't know how to respond to this situation. There's no book for this because this person is acting in a very unpredictable way. I know nothing about their background. I know nothing about their mental health status, their medication, their physical health status. Um, and so that's the main thing that jumps out on me is is you know Mr. Penny. 
may or may not be legally liable, but I'm definitely sympathetic to Mr. Penny facing a situation that was unpredictable and he acted to try to address right. the situation. Yeah. Now that's, you, you raise a couple of things I think that are interesting here. Number one is since, so you'll notice when I was talking, walking through the facts, I did not talk about uh, Neely, who Neely's the victim. Penny is the, uh, I'm not going to say perpetrator because he's not been convicted of anything, but you know, he's, he's the guy who did the chokehold. Uh, but Neely, since this incident has happened, it has become known that this guy was arrested a lot. Um, this guy had committed acts of violence before. And a lot of people are using the fact that he committed these acts of violence and had been arrested before to sort of post hoc see, see Penny was exactly right to judge Neely a threat in that moment because guess what? He'd been a threat a lot. But if Penny didn't know that about Neely, you cannot take that knowledge and impute that into the situation. Um, you would have to have evidence that Penny knew of Neely's propensity for violence in the past for it to have any bearing whatsoever on this. And the other thing that I think is interesting, and Damon, I wonder if this is your experience as well. When you live in New York, sadly, over time, you're going to encounter people who are having mental health episodes in public. And there's a kind of jaded sense that takes over where people will kind of move away from someone who's having that kind of episode. But it happens often enough that at least when I was living there, my mind was not immediately going to, this is dangerous. It was much more like, this is sad. Don't know what to do. We need to give this person space. But if you're not from there, and you're seeing this unfold, it can be incredibly unsettling because it is not your normal experience of life. And I wonder if that dichotomy, because there's some longtime New Yorkers who are like, give me a break. This is something that we'd seen a lot. And others are saying, what are you talking about? You see this a lot. Yeah, I think that's that it's, it's exactly right. And the subway is the, that's the, the the crucible by which this I mean all so many people are packed onto the subway and New York is such a diverse culture um, that it, it it it's it's a fascinating so, sociological study just to ride the subway in New York and um, and you're right that there is this sense when you live there that these kinds of things can happen and most of the time at least when I live there um, most of the time it it is of no serious threat. And it is something that simply, if you're uncomfortable moving away, solves the issue and, and, and it rarely escalates to something more. Um, but yes, it, it can be very unsettling the first time you, you see it, or if you, if you believe that this is just the train ride, like a train ride across the West, that it's just an Amtrak. Well, the New York subway is a little different uh, when it comes to the, the people that ride the subway. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something, and from what I, I don't live there now, I lived there in the um, midnight, well, late 90s, and the, the city had really turned the corner. It was substantially safer than it had been in the late 80s and early 90s. This was at the height of the Giuliani era, and we forget now, after four seasons total landscaping and the whole debacle of the 2020 election, that there was a time when Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor. He was the guy who had turned around New York. But even then, even when sort of the the tide had turned, you still encountered instability in public frequently. Like it was not rare to encounter it. Um, and And every time it was unsettling. And every time I was kind of left with, I don't know exactly what to do here except to adopt a pose of like watching and waiting, sort of tense, being tense and prepared to do something, but not doing anything. Um, were, have, did, were you ever in, uh, when you were there in, the, in roughly the same time, were you ever in circumstances where you thought, I'm, will I have to do something <laughs> about this person? Yeah, I was, I was actually going to make the point that there are, 
there are encounters that I had that I think are fairly common that where it is, you are faced with actual criminal behavior, not a mental health breakdown, but there are, there are people who are actually committing crimes, whether it be theft or intimidation. Uh, I, I didn't see any assaults, but I certainly saw there were, there were individuals that would walk through the subway cars and they would kind of intimidate people. And you knew that they were looking for somebody to maybe con, maybe con- convince uh, uh, them to give money under certain circumstances. Um, and I think relevant to this, the, not all criminal behavior is worthy of a physical response. And, and, and we'll get into that with the legal standards, but, but you have to I think if you live in New York, which is different from visiting because you don't build the skills through through visiting, but if you're living there, you just become comfortable with the defense mechanisms to recognize, okay, this person's probably up to no good, but I'm not going to take them on about it. I will just, you know, read my book, look down, turn around, turn away and just hope they move on. And at least in my experience, they typically did. Yeah. You know, and again, to a lot of people, this might seem, well, wait a minute, how are you helping if you're watching somebody up to no good and you don't intervene? Well, one of the reasons is perhaps the very situation we're talking about now is things can escalate, uh, especially if you're dealing with somebody who is unstable, escalate far to a situation far more grim and gruesome than the situation you were trying to address. Uh, and I think that that's a kind of a a subjective mental calculus that a lot of New Yorkers make all the time, which is, is the ups, is the downside of intervening here far worse than the upside? Would this, is this a transient moment of inconvenience and concern or a catastrophic moment of physical danger? And knowing the line between those two, a lot of, uh, often depends on instinct and experience, right? That's right. Um, I think the law would say that, that you, ha- you need to be conservative in that, uh, in that response because you don't want to overreact, both because it can escalate, but also just you, you, can, you can do something that you later realize in hindsight, okay, that, I went too far there. Uh, and so it's, uh, it, it, it is something that you have to be disciplined, but that's a lot easier in hindsight than it is in the moment when it's very unpredictable. All right, so let's let's talk about the law here, and and I I want to call this maybe the law of the bar fight, because one of the things that we we focus on a lot in and we focused on in this podcast, we focused you you talk about it in sort of the public square quite a bit. We talked about it when we did a deep dive into the Rittenhouse verdict, where he used deadly force. When can you use deadly force in defense of self and others? Has been a has been a point of real contention. This is what standard ground laws often revolve around. But this is different. This is not a situation where I don't think that um, Penny's going to say that, oh, yeah, I, I believe deadly force was necessary. I intended to use deadly force and use deadly force. He's going to say, no, I did not intend to use deadly force. I intended only to restrain this individual until the danger had passed. And what happened, his medical crisis that resulted was unpredictable, uh, unforeseeable, and very unfortunate. But that's going to be what he'll likely say. So what we're not talking about is justification for the use of deadly force. So, Damon, I like to go to jury instructions (laughs) sometimes uh, rather than statutes because the jury instructions are written in such a way as to be understandable to uh, ordinary folks. So let me, let me look at a, read a jury instruction um, and love to get your reaction to this. All right, so here is, here's the jury instruction. Pretend I'm the judge and you're the jury listening. The defendant has raised the defense of justification, also known as self-defense. The defendant, however, is not required to prove that he was justified. The people are required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was not justified. I want to stop right there because I think that's super important. Um, so, Damon, your defense as your defense lawyer, how does raising this defense of justification 
operate at trial? Well, it's you obviously have to be strategic. It doesn't just happen. And so you have to build your whole case around that defense. Um, while the burden of proof remains on the, in our state, the Commonwealth or the state, um, the you do have a burden of production. You have to raise the issue enough to get the jury instruction that you just mentioned. Uh, and so you want, you have to take on every fact um, and, and make sure that it's framed in, in terms of how does this build the case that this was, that, that the, the state cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this wasn't a justified uh, act, the, that, that the circumstances that your client, my client faced at the time were such that it was reasonable for him or her to believe that, that, that this act was necessary. And so uh, it, it can't simply be, in my opinion, that the state puts on its case of, a, of in this case, uh, a, an act that resulted in a death. And then the defense at the last minute just put their client on, put the client on the stand to say, no, I thought I, I thought I was in danger. Therefore, I had to do that. It's got to be more than that through cross examining, through through opening, through closing, through uh, looking at the uh, medical evidence, because this will be medical evidence as to what the cause of death was here, which was uh, essentially asphyxiation. Uh, and that's uh, all of that you want to frame in the way that this was a reasonable response to a threatening act. But it, I think what's important is it doesn't work like this. It doesn't work where I, the prosecution, prove you killed him. And then you have to prove your affirmative defense of justification. That's not how it works. I have to prove you killed him and I have to prove there was no justification. And that's a distinction between other defenses like insanity. In most jurisdictions, if you raise insanity, it works on your alternate path that you just mentioned, where the the common the state will prove that um, that the crime occurred, that there was an intent, and it was an intentional act, and then you would say the defense would then have both the burden of production and the burden of proof to say yes, committed this crime, but did so while not meeting the definition of uh, of being of sane mind at the time. Uh, this, as you say, is is different. Once the once the defense brings up some evidence of self-defense, then the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt it wasn't self-defense. And, and truthfully, that's the way it should be. Self-defense has a long history within the law in this country and worldwide. Uh, justification is extremely important that people be able to act to protect themselves and others. Uh, and, and one way of making sure that, that, ha- that that's firmly rooted in the law is to put it as an element of the offense that the prosecution has to prove that this wasn't self-defense. Yeah. And I think that's a, a very important point to pause and highlight on because when you're a prosecutor making a charging decision, you've got to be able to, you've got to have confidence that I think I can disprove this defense beyond a reasonable doubt. I have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt it's not justified. And that's, that's an extra step that is difficult. All right. Now let's move on. This is as the the jury instruction continues. I will now explain our law's definition to the defense of justification as it applies to this case. Under our law, a person may use physical force upon another individual when and to the extent that he reasonably believes it to be necessary to defend himself or someone else from what he reasonably believes to be the use or imminent use of unlawful physical force by such an individual. Um, This is, we'll pause here. This is interesting. So obviously if you see person A physically attacking person B, you can intervene under this standard. But also Damon, if I reasonably believe you're about to attack person B, the imminent use of unlawful, so if you can defend someone else from the imminent use of unlawful physical force. So this is where it gets tough. Seems easy to say if, per, uh, you know, Bob is, is, is wailing on Jim, I can pull Bob off. But when can I intervene to pull Bob away from Jim before Bob starts, and I'm just using these, making up these names, starts wailing on Jim. Seems to be, really 
ambiguous there. It's going to kind of try to sharpen it up, but wanted your thoughts on that portion. Yeah. I think if Bob's going to wail on Jim, you, you, this, this is partly, as we already said, um, it, it depends on the context, depends on the history you're aware of. If you know that Bob has a history of wailing on Jim, <laughs> then you can step in uh, sooner because you know the pattern. Right Here, there's no evidence that anyone knew prior uh, his prior behavior. Um, as you mentioned, we've since learned that perhaps he had some convictions for assaults. Uh, I don't believe there were any any uh, convictions for anything more serious than assault or anything with weapons. I think it was hand-to-hand assaults, um, but nobody knew that. So in the moment, the imminent question in this is one of the things, as I, as I thought through this legally, that is one of the keys, if I were defense attorney, um, it, well, actually, if I were a prosecutor, I would say that this, uh, um, there, there's no, it's a qu- open question as to whether there was an imminent act here. Now, in the instruction that you read, it said use or imminent use. I, uh, in, in Kentucky, our law is that it has to be imminent, and there's expansive case law because this is often the issue because when you, you want to act, and again, these are split-second decisions. Do I act or do I not act? And if you act too early when there was still an exit lane, essentially that we weren't, that the violence wasn't imminent, then, then you're not protected under the law if it's not imminent. So let me ask you this, how much does it, how much do these two, uh, two, two other factors play in? Factor number one, I know the subways are more dangerous lately. There's been lots of bad things that have happened on the subway. How much does that allow to play into this? And the other part is how much is no one can retreat? In other words, you're all, no one can leave like a, and if someone's having a breakdown on a, on a street, you can just walk away. But if you're on a subway train in a subway car, you're in a confined space. So first, how much does it play in for someone to get on the stand and say, look, I've seen the news, things are getting really dangerous on the subway and I didn't want things to escalate. Like how much can sort of background sense of alarm or danger influence that imminent, that imminence? And then how much does it factor in that it's an enclosed subway car. Well, there to claim self-defense, you there's a there's a objective part of it and a subjective part of it. And what you what you talk about with uh, other acts of violence and awareness of general unsafe conditions on the subway that can play into either of the subjective or the objective. And and by subjective and objective, I mean this Uh, subjectively, you have to believe that you need to act to defend yourself or others, and so. If you're aware of other unsafe conditions, that may play into your actual belief. But it also could go to the objective. Would a reasonable person in this same circumstance believe it? And a reasonable person, I think it's fair to say a reasonable person in New York City, would be aware of uh, perhaps increasing unsafe conditions on subway. And so it can go into those factors as, as, as far as it, did he really believe it and did he was it reasonable to believe it? And I... I I know our intent here is to stick with the law and, and and we should for the most part, but there is a political aspect to this because public safety is in 2023 a political issue. It gets a lot of media coverage, particularly in certain uh, corners of the media. And so there is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy here in that if I, if I convince myself that the world is an unsafe place, I'm more likely to take an act because my perception is that it's very likely I will face an unsafe situation. Whereas if someone didn't have that frame of mind, if somebody just rode the subway and assumed everything was going to be fine, you might interpret a situation differently in that you think, well, you know, this person's having a mental health breakdown, but they're not actively threatening. They don't have a weapon. They're standing you know, a few feet away from me, I'm not going to act because I don't believe that the subway is an unsafe place. And so it does come into it a little bit. And unfortunately, different people's perceptions are different as far as the likelihood that they're going to face a violent encounter. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, being on the subway car, I think is also a factor here in the sense that it's not like being Say in Times Square, you just where you just give the person a wide berth until the next stop. You're kind of stuck together. You're kind and 
people can move away, but can't fully leave the scene if somebody is getting extremely dangerous. And certainly the ability to wrap, you know, I think in some cars, you might be able to move from one to the other with some, with some ease, but not, it's still not like being outside on the street. You're still far more confined. I, I think that also plays into law enforcement's um, presence here as well. And the subway is a, is a hard um, location to police because of the separate cars. If you were in a open space, there could be a policeman anywhere within a hundred yards that could come running when a situation starts developing. But when you've got these cars that are, I don't know how long they are, maybe 50 feet, 75 feet long cars, maybe, maybe a hundred foot foot cars, but then they have these doors. Each car has a door. They're all separate. If something's happening in one car of the subway and a police officer is one or two cars away, it's the same as they're in a different county. It's, they're not going to know what's going on in real time. They can get a radio call and same processes as any other call, but it is difficult. It would, it's not practical to have a police officer on every subway car. So you're right. It is a confined space with limited ability for constant monitoring. Right. Um, and let's get to the, the test for use of force. You've already alluded to it. It's got both a subjective and an objective component. Let's again, go back to the jury instruction. The determination of whether a person reasonably believes physical force to be necessary to defend himself or someone else from what he reasonably believes to be the use or imminent use of physical force for another individual requires a two-part test. The test applies to this case in the following way. First, the defendant must have actually believed that, in this case, Mr. Neely was using or was about to use physical force against him or someone else and that the defendant's own use of physical force was necessary to defend himself from it. And so point one, you got to actually believe that you needed to use force or, and the use, or the use of force against you or someone else was imminent. And then second, a reasonable person in the defendant's position, knowing what the defendant knew and being in the same circumstances, would have had those same beliefs. It does not matter that the defendant was or may have been mistaken in his belief, provided that such belief was both, was both honestly held and reasonable. So again, maybe it could be that there was never any danger. You could have been mistaken in that. But if your belief was reasonable and honestly held, you've got your defense. Um, so Damon, in practice, how does that reasonable person, how do you approach that reasonable person standard with a jury? Well, you hope that your jury is going to be reasonable people at first, <laughs> uh, which is not always the case. Um, but but you, you, you go with it in mind that eventually this case is going to be heard by 12 reasonable people. And so what do they think? Um, and I'll just say as a practice tip, one of the things we do when we're at trying to work towards a trial is we try to involve as many non-lawyers as possible. Cause one of the problems, and, and here it is on the podcast, we've got two lawyers talking about this and uh, we think we're reasonable people, but really we're reasonable lawyers and reasonable people are, uh, are not lawyers. They don't come from a legal background. They're not the, the word, the use of the word imminent never occurs to them. And so you want to think of it in terms of a regular person, um, your, you know, it could be your cousin, your aunt, could be somebody from your church. You want to think about what is, how would they react to this? And, and you want to work hard on what are they perceiving? I've said this a number of times, but it's the most important thing. What are they perceiving in the moment? And what, how would a reasonable person, uh, and if we say another word for reasonable, maybe normal, that you know, there's a value judgment there, but but a, a regular person, a, a normal person, just the guy you see on the street corner, how would that person respond to this? Uh, it can be hard, again, as a lawyer to step into those shoes, but that's extremely important. And and that has, you know, that's been around as long as the law is the standard of the reasonable person. And so you just want to involve other people in the conversation to figure out is this reasonable or not? It's easy as lawyers to dig into the elements and say, well, this doesn't meet this element. But a reasonable person is is inherently a non-legal concept. Right, right. Um, okay, so 
now we're going to get into reputation. We've already talked about this. Um, it says, jury instructions deal with this. You have heard testimony that Mr. Neely had a reputation for violence, engaged in violent acts. Normally, the law does not permit such testimony. In this case, they're probably not even going to hear testimony, I would think. What do you think of the, would there, I, I, would, I, would, I would guess that the testimony about uh, Neely's past violence would not be admitted in this case um, unless there's evidence that the, you know, that uh, uh, the Marine knew of the guy's reputation, which we don't have that evidence yet. I'm guessing that Neely's violent past doesn't come into this trial. Do you think it does or doesn't? Yeah, I think if I was prosecution, I would argue strongly and be jumping up and down that none of that comes in. Now, the one the one gap we have, and you just you just noted it, is we really don't know anything about what Mr. Penny saw, thought, knew, or anything. We we don't have anything from him. His lawyers have made a general statement that he didn't intend to to kill Mr. Neely, uh, but we know nothing else about what he perceived. So even as to the last part, we assume he was acting to protect himself and others, but he hasn't said that. We we don't know that from him yet. Maybe the the lawyer statement um, laid that out as a defense. Uh, but yes, if he didn't have actual knowledge of, you know, past convictions, the fact that uh, Mr. Neely may have been a, convicted of assault or may have had uh, a history of mental health breakdowns that resulted in, in harm to others, uh, none of, I, I would say none of that would be admissible. Um, now, it's also the jury instructions and the law says that you can't claim self-defense or defense of others if you're the initial aggressor. But who is the initial aggressor if you believe it is imminent? <laughs> so if you believe it is imminent, reasonably, you can be the aggressor. Uh, but if your belief is unreasonable, then you're the aggressor and you can't raise defense. So everything is going to, seems like, well, not everything because we're going to get to one more thing, but so much is going to come down to whether or not that initial decision to intervene was going to be deemed reasonable. Because if it wasn't, then he is the aggressor here that the Marine is the aggressor on, on Neely. Uh, but that's so much. And it reminds me of the Rittenhouse case where basically everything flowed from that initial first encounter that Rittenhouse had where he was chased before he fired that first shot. If Rittenhouse was deemed to be the initial aggressor, every shooting after that is the shooting of an active shooter. <laughs> But if he was not the initial aggressor, if he was firing in self-defense, everything that flowed from that was self-defense. And that's going to be key here. Yeah, I think that was a, that was a bigger issue in, in, in Rittenhouse. Here, clearly, uh, unless more evidence comes out, I don't think Mr. Penny you know, started this encounter. And so um, the question is, is, was Mr. Neely simply you know, flipping out or... Was he actually threatening other people? If it could be perceived as a threat, then I, I, I think Mr. Penny, um, there's no question he was acting in response to Mr. Neely. But the key is Mr. Penny unquestionably escalated it by engaging in an act that resulted in death. Um, you know, if, if somebody's having a fist fight, you can't pull out a gun. That, that escalates uh, the encounter to where then it's similar to initial aggressor. You're now the initial enhanced aggressor. You're, you're the one who made it more serious. And so you can be legally liable in that. Yeah. Okay. So now this gets to the, this gets to an interesting question. Let's say I'm a prosecutor and I'm saying, you know, I'm, I really am not convinced that I could persuade a jury that this was unjustified and unjustified initial intervention, but he killed him. So I can't, it might be justified. If you see two people fighting, it might be justified to grab one of them and pull him off the other one. It is not justified to pull out a gun and shoot him in the head. So the use of force has to be proportionate to what the actual threat is. So what happens, Damon, if I'm coming in and I'm saying, look, my I, I'm a Marine. I'm trained in combatives. I know that the chokehold is a way to cause submission. It is not intended as a means of causing death. 
that that is horrible. It's unfortunate. I can't believe that happened. But I'm not reasonably responsible for that because what I did was not like pulling out a gun. It was like pulling someone away and he wouldn't stop fighting me. So I held him until he couldn't fight me any longer. Um, How is the law going to treat this? Because it is not the same as pulling a gun, but it's obviously worked out in the same manner. It, it killed him. <laughs> um, so does, does the Marine have legal jeopardy, not because of the in- initial intervention, but mainly because of the outcome? Yeah, I think that it, that is the key. Uh, and your part of your analysis there uh, was part was something I thought about as well is, is, when Mr. Neely was having his breakdown and before he touched anybody, before anybody touched him, if someone simply pulled out a gun and said and shot the person uh, or or in some other way brought about their instant death in a way that wasn't threatening to others, that simply neutralized Mr. Neely, uh, would that have been justified? I do think that's that's a relevant legal question here. The facts when it comes to the cause of death, uh, you know, how was there something about Mr. Neely that made him more susceptible to this? Did he have a weakness? Uh, we don't need to get into, you know, eggshell plaintiff territory here with, with, with who he was, but, but it, there, something could come out there that affects it somewhat. But I think legally you've got to look at, because it did end in a death. I, I think it, it is helpful to fast forward to that, to, to say, what if the death had happened instantly? Is that any different? Um, but as to on the training issue, there, so I said uh, two things you mentioned, the training and the fact that Mr. Neely was still resisting. On the training issue, I don't think that's going to help uh, Mr. Penny, the Marine, because undoubtedly, I am not from a military background. I've never had training in chokeholds, but I am sure that whatever training there was cautioned on uh, a certain duration of time, a certain amount of pressure. Uh, releasing when when the person who's who's in the holds shows certain physical signs of of submission um, and to result in death, I'm I'm confident that Mr. Penny, whether intentionally or not, exceeded the limits that he was trained uh, on chokeholds. Um, and so I, I I don't know that that yes he may have used that because he's been trained in that. But part of that training would have been limits that, again, having not had the training myself, I, I believe I believe the military wouldn't be training people to kill people, um, or at least they would know where the line is on that. I was going to say the opposite. Well, uh, yeah, and you, you know more about that than I do. Unless you're an MP. So if you're an MP, you're going to be trained in restraining individuals um, in non-lethal ways. But if you're in the infantry... If you're going to be engaged in hand-to-hand combat, it may well be to the death. Um, and so you may not be trained in limits. You may be trained in this. This is how you break an arm. This is how you choke somebody to death. This is how. Now, if you're then going to go on and be trained maybe in dealing with detainees and detainee operations, if you're going to be military police, and I'm sure we'll listen hear from listeners, but very my very limited uh, exposure to combatives training was not about limits at all. Um, it was about incapacitation. It, it's about inca- it, it's rendering the threat, neutralizing the threat, not about restraining an individual safely. And I think that's an interesting distinction. First thing I thought of when I heard he was a Marine was I thought this guy is not trained to do this safely. If to the extent that you can do it safely at all was sort of, my thought on it, this guy's trained to incapacitate. Um, but you you are going to have another aspect of this related to resisting. Yeah, the, the other part is if, if the facts come out that um, Mr. Neely kept resisting and that that somehow affected the physical chokehold, um, then it could be that uh, even if there were limits that Mr. Penny was trying to um, stay within, that Mr. Neely's resistance that just physically the death was caused by a combination of the chokehold and the resistance. You know, we don't know factually and how the medical and scientific evidence, and there'll probably be an expert for the defense, I would assume here, 
if this goes to trial. And so um, this that'll be left to the battle of experts. But that would go to it as well, because um, while the outcome does color all of this, the outcome could have come about in in ways that weren't exclusively Mr. Penny's actions. Well, and that that raises you raise this phrase called the eggshell plaintiff, which I think is really interesting. And if you've not been to law school, you've never heard that phrase before. But that is essentially in civil law. If I'm going to be like, let's say I punch Damon, we get into a heated argument over my fantasy baseball team and I and I punch Damon. Uh, I'm not trying. Let's say I'm not trying to hurt him at all. I'm just trying to intimidate him or whatever. But I didn't know this, but he has a, a genetic condition that means that his his bones are very fragile and I break all the bones in his face. Well, I'm liable for all of that harm, even if I didn't intend all of that harm civilly. I, I, I caused it. I injured him to that extent. Therefore, I am responsible for the injuries that I caused him, even if I didn't intend to cause, cause all the injuries that I caused. And this is sort of called the eggshell skull rule, the eggshell plaintiff rule, um, criminal law. If I didn't intend the criminal, uh, the consequence, uh, and if I was justified in the initial intervention and even with the initial form of intervention, um, let's say a punch and response, but let's say the punch accidentally kills a person as a punch can in very rare circumstances. Does that mean that I'm therefore facing a similar kind of liability? Yeah, it's a tough question. Uh, and, and there's another concept called the felony murder here that that if you're committing a crime otherwise and a death occurs, you can be held responsible, criminally responsible for the death, even when you didn't intend the death. Um, and so that's, that kind of can play into this. But uh, I would think when it comes to um, this concept of reasonableness that we've talked about, that if 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 it turns out that Mr. Neely had some health condition that made it more likely that he would uh, die quicker uh, through this kind of maneuver, uh, I think the the focus is going to be on what Mr. Penny's actions were at the time. I I don't think uh, those the eggshell skull concept would would make Mr. Penny more liable here in these circumstances. It would. In the circumstances that you're mentioning, if Mr. Neely was just simply sitting on the subway right, read, reading a book and out of nowhere, Mr. Penny went up and, cho- and, and engaged in a chokehold because he thought it was funny or whatever reason, then he would be responsible. But in the co- context of justification where the reasonableness of the response uh, is the key element, then I don't think I, I think if it turns out Mr. Neely died for some other reason. Uh, that wasn't fully the chokehold or or that the chokehold work was more lethal on Mr. Neely than it would have been on another person. I think that would probably work to Mr. Penny's legal advantage and make him less likely to be held liable. Okay, so we've we've walked through everything. Now let's let's kind of sum it up. I want you to put on a prosecutor hat and then a, a defense attorney hat. So let's start with the prosecutor hat. You're looking at the case. What's your strongest point from a prosecution perspective? What's your weakest? One concept that, that I, I haven't mentioned that I would use as a prosecutor is um, I, I'm very sympathetic, as I said at the very beginning. I'm very sympathetic to the fact that Mr. Penny was trying to do some good here. He felt like he and others on the subway may be under threat, and he was trying to act. But there's a concept in the law, um, basically, that you 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 as- you assume a risk when when you act. You are assuming a risk, and so a, a classic law school example is uh, if someone is in trouble on the side of the road, maybe they maybe their car is burning or something, and you stop and you pick them up, and you take them and you drop them off on a free in the middle of a freeway bridge where they're in in heavy danger. You can't then say, "Well, I didn't have to pick them up at all; they were going to die in this first place, but I picked them up." Once you act. You don't have to act at all. But once you act, there's a legal responsibility to act with care and reasonableness. And so what I would say as a prosecutor is that Mr. Penny didn't have to act. We want people to be able to act. But once you act, you have to act reasonably. And that Mr. Penny in uh, engaging in this potentially lethal 
uh, hold, holding it until Mr. Neely's body was limp, uh, such that they had to physically turn him on his side when they, they hoped hoped and thought he was still alive. And it turns out that, that the damage had been done by then to lead to his death, that that was too extreme of a, of a response to this. Uh, it was the, we've talked about imminent, that there was no imminent threat and there certainly wasn't an imminent threat of lethal force by Mr. Neely. And so this, this was an, an overplay. So I'd say, I, I think that's the theme of, of a successful prosecution. Um, I think the weakest point is it's you want you want people to be able to act to protect others. And if there were 50 people on the subway, you know, 48 people are living their life now and one is dead and one we're talking about putting in prison for trying to protect the other 48. Uh, and and I, so I think just the narrative works to the defense's favor here in that the one guy that dared to stand up for others is the one that we're looking to punish. Yeah. And it strikes me just from, from my assessment of this all, it really does strike me that a prosecution would have to depend on saying that the chokehold was so obviously and inherently dangerous that this was something akin to pulling out a gun in a fist fight that this was some something equivalent to that but that strikes me damon is not the easiest case to make um especially if you may have testimony from this you know from mr penny the the marine who says no 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 i you know look i've done this before um i've you know been involved in combatives before i've used chokeholds before and this was no, I had not the slightest hint in my mind that what I was doing was potentially deadly. I can't believe this happened. I'm so sorry this happened, but he just was fighting to get away from me and I couldn't stop him from getting away. And besides, you don't want, you can't expect an average person to be an expert in restraint. It's up to the person being restrained to stop their aggression. Um, Strikes me as kind of a, a relatively as a pretty compelling argument to make to a jury, perhaps. Yeah, I think it is compelling in the moment. the The question would be, where do we go from there? Uh, that that are we setting up a situation to where people are convinced that the subway is a dangerous place, and we're deputizing people uh, as uh, the enforcers of public safety? Um, and saying, you know, whatever you need to do to control the behavior, uh, it really is contrary to the legal principles that we've talked about. And that's what makes this a tough case. The legal principles are you have to respond in kind and not escalate. Well, Mr. Neely wasn't choking anybody. Mr. Neely wasn't assaulting anybody. And if you're going to respond with physical force, there's got to be a limit there somewhere. Right. Right. Yeah. To me, I was talking to a colleague about it um, because there's just so much confusion. Everyone gets it that when you say um, someone's threatening to kill me, I can respond. Or if someone's punching me, I can respond. This gray area of no one is punching anybody yet. And but you believe that violence is about to break out again. I don't even if. If you just held him down or if the chokehold had caused him to momentarily pass out, um, we never hear about this. Never. Um, it's not even a news item. It's just this is something that happened and, um, you know, a good Samaritan intervened in a danger, a potentially dangerous situation. Everything's OK. It just strikes me that everything, everything is coming down to how reasonable was the chokehold itself more so than the intervention itself? Um, it's just how I'm looking at this case. Yeah, well, it's interesting you use the phrase "good Samaritan." Um, I mean that that presumes a conclusion, I think, um, because because it, you can imagine someone is just annoyed. They 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 want a peaceful subway ride, and a man with clear mental illness gets on and starts screaming and yelling but not 
overtly threatening, not not uh, directly, uh, you know, imminent threatening the imminent use. And then somebody's annoyed and they respond out of anger. Well, that shouldn't be protected, and that person wouldn't necessarily be a good Samaritan, but that situation looks a lot similar to what this looks like in the end, in, in one man grabs another man around the neck, and here we are. Yeah, yeah, gosh. All right, so just putting on your, you know, and hey, for all we know, by the time this podcast comes out, there's a charging decision or not, I, I don't think they're going to make a decision that, that quickly. Do you see a prosecution here? Um, do you see one unfolding? Do you think that this is a situation where the prosecutor might say, look, I'm just going to, I'm going to present this to the grand jury. Uh, if the grand jury indicts, away we go. Um, what's, what, what's, your, what's your assessment? That, that's a common tool uh, to, for a prosecutor to uh, essentially divert responsibility to the grand jury. And, and, and that's what grand juries are there for is to have, like we talked about, regular people review of a of a criminal case to to see whether somebody should go to trial. Um, I, I I do think that this will be presented to a grand jury. Uh, the question is because grant the the old saying is you know prosecutors could could get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Prosecutors have a lot of control over what grand juries do, and so so the question is will the prosecutor ask them to indict? or simply give a neutral, you know, do what you think is right type of instruction. Uh, because certainly in most cases that I handle uh, that are, are not this close, the prosecutor goes into the grand jury and says, here's what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. And they already have the charging document written out in advance and say, we want you <laughs> right. to vote positive on this charge. If the prosecutor does that here, uh, I actually do think there, that uh, my prediction would be that there will be a charge here. Whether there's a conviction is a whole different question down the road. Uh, I think there there's a lot of uh, pressure on there being a charge here. I will say in 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 I've never had a there's not a lot of subways that run through Kentucky, so I haven't had a lot of uh, cases <laughs> any, like this there in the any last subways. There, there are no subways that run through <laughs> Kentucky, and we barely get Amtrak just in the corner. Uh, but the uh, uh, but generally in cases like this where um, there's some type of public encounter and one person acts and another person winds up dead. Uh, it's extremely rare that there's no charge from the beginning. Um, and so I do think one of the complaints, public complaints here is that uh, Mr. Penny is being, is not being treated the way that others would be treated. Perhaps even if these same two individuals, if it had reversed and Mr. Neely had uh, acted against Mr. Penny uh, with, with the racial difference uh, that maybe it would be different. Uh, I think that's that in my experience, when there's someone killed at the hands of another, not in the home, you know, if it's home self-defense, that's a whole different thing. But in a public place, I, I think in most circumstances, someone would be charged and then the case would be investigated. Uh, I think that pressure may lead there to be a charge here. Yeah, I well, th- that raises a you raise a good question about the prosecutor's sort of ability to I'm not going to say manipulate or maybe that's the right word, a grand jury. Have you have you seen it very much in your career or at all where a prosecutor wants a grand jury to indict and a grand jury just says, nope, not going to do it? Sure, that's it's it's rare. Uh, It's called a no true bill when a when a grand jury hears a case and then says there's not enough evidence. Um, I I haven't seen it in a in a high profile cases. Most of my cases are way much more mundane than than that. But I certainly have seen cases where. Uh, police officers think they have a strong case. Prosecutor presents it um, and asks the grand jury to indict. And the grand jury says, I just don't see it. I either I don't agree with the police officer or I think there's another motive going on here. Um, but uh, yeah, it, but that's rare. And for the most part, uh, the prosecutor works closely with the grand jury. They've got a, at least in Kentucky, weeks long, if not months long relationship where they're meeting on regular intervals, hearing lots of cases. And and prosecutors are pretty good at uh, uh, getting grand juries to do what they want to do. All right. Well, this has been thorough and the finest advisory opinions tradition. <laughs> and um, how's my team doing, Damon, by the way? Well, you're ahead of me, which is not uh, <laughs> not something I'm proud of at this moment. But if if you will invite me back in five months, I'm I'm confident that won't be the case. <laughs> the backstory is 
I have long since stopped really paying close attention to baseball, although I value being in the fantasy baseball league immensely. These are my close friends. I missed the draft for the first time in, oh gosh, uh, since I was in Iraq, since 07 um, or 08, the, in April of 08. So the first missed draft in 15 years. And I'm distraught about it. And I had a friend draft my team for me. And it's already a better team than I normally have. Um, but I, I got to confess, I don't, I don't keep up it as closely as I do, say, with the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah, I was going to ask you who your best players were, Dave, but um, maybe I won't ask that. I literally have no idea. Literally. <laughs> well, Damon, thank you very much for coming back for a repeat performance on the Advisory Opinions podcast. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. Good to talk to you, Dave. And thank you. Yeah. Well, and listeners, Sarah doesn't normally ask you to rate us anymore, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you to rate us and, and leave us a nice review on, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. And Sarah will be back. The true host of Advisory Opinions will be back uh, later this week. So we'll both be talking to you in a few days. Until then, uh, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>